You're listening to the Diplomats podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Pando, here from New York City. And joining me this week is Catherine Putz, the Diplomats managing editor. Katie, thank you for joining me. Well, thank you for having me, Ankit. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. And uh, as listeners probably know, every time we have Katie on, we usually end up talking about either Central Asia or Afghanistan, because that's what Katie does best. And this time we're going to be talking about Afghanistan, which we haven't actually talked about on the podcast, I think, since the February 2020 U.S.-Taliban agreement. So it's it's overdue for a revisit. And we're hoping, Katie, on this episode that we can kind of do a little bit of a sit rep, a situation report on what is happening with that agreement and the state of relations between not only the U.S. and the Taliban, but the Afghan government and the Taliban. Of course, um, this is all happening now in the middle of a global pandemic, which was sort of a variable that I think a lot of folks hadn't worked into their takes on peace in Afghanistan back in uh, February 2020. Um, Mm -hmm. But that's very much a factor now. Um, So just to get everybody on the same page, though, um, and for the benefit of our listeners, um, it's worth just going over what exactly the February 2020 agreement was. Uh, First of all, it had that very convoluted name about how the U.S. doesn't recognize the Taliban as a state, uh, which is obviously a very sensitive topic if you're the Afghan government trying to preserve every last drop of legitimacy you have, especially at the time after the contested elections. We got a little bit of good news in May with the power sharing agreement between Ghani and Abdullah. Um, So there's basically four core components to the agreement. Um, The first being a ceasefire, um, which obviously has been patchy, to say the least, um, leading to a withdrawal of forces, uh, the first batch of which was supposed to be done by um, within 135 days of the agreement, which I believe are coming up on that in July. And intra-Afghan negotiations were the next part. The Taliban were supposed to begin talks with the Afghan government. Uh, We've had reports recently that those talks will begin in Doha uh, with Ashraf Ghani participating. Um, Although, again, I think we'll have to see it to believe it. Um, And then finally, the big part, and really what I think we'll be talking about today, Katie, is the counterterrorism assurances, Um, really kind of going back to the reason the United States began a war in Afghanistan almost 19 years ago, um, being the fact that Afghan soil was being used by terror groups like Al-Qaeda to conduct terrorist attacks on U.S. soil. So the Taliban gave assurances that this would not be the case. And this is something that's come under doubt recently. So, Katie, I just kind of ran through that very quickly. But what are your thoughts on where we really are with sort of each of those components? I mean, the the picture doesn't look all that great from where I'm sitting. I don't know if you share that view. Yeah, uh, it it doesn't really look good. Um, I I have always sort of been pretty critical of the deal. Um, and, and I'm glad that you sort of pointed to the, the guarantees and the conditions that Afghan soil won't be used for terrorism, because um, that always seemed like a very flimsy and hard to achieve thing. Uh, and that's kind of borne out. So this week, um, Marine General Ken McKenzie, who's the CENTCOM commander, said in, in a call, I think it was with, uh, it was a video conference with Middle East Institute, um, and, and this is a direct quote, if conditions would allow, we're prepared to go to zero by May 2021. If asked my opinion, those conditions have not been fully met. So you have the CENTCOM commander this week saying, we haven't like haven't met these commission, uh, the conditions that were set out and the, the sort of contentious one that there are certainly issues with all the other uh, parts of the, the four part agreement um, is that the Taliban stopped working with Al Qaeda. Uh, Two weeks ago, roughly, uh, the UN came out with, there was a report that came out of a UN body that essentially said the Taliban is maintaining ties with Al-Qaeda. Uh, that the relations between the Taliban, in particular the Haqqani network, remain pretty close. They're based on 
friendship, this shared sort of history of struggle and, and a lot of sort of intermingling. Um, and that even within the Taliban, uh, the sources for this UN report, which are, are, are state members uh, of the UN, we're saying that there's sort of a split even within the Taliban where you have the political leaders kind of saying one thing and going in one direction, and then you still have that connection on a field level. Um, the UN estimates about 400 to 600 Al-Qaeda fighters in Afghanistan, and that those relations remain sort of solid. So one of the other things Mackenzie said this week is that, you know, the Taliban, you know, they're not really our enemy, but Al-Qaeda is the problem. Um, and that that's a, a paraphrasing of what he said, but um, I think what that where that leaves me is sort of somebody who's watching this region is that one of the core components of this agreement, the very first thing listed in the February deal is the guarantee that the soil of Afghanistan won't be used by any group against the United States. And in the explanation of that guarantee sort of stipulation, Al Qaeda is specifically mentioned. So from the military perspective, if they still see this interaction and this relationship between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, that condition isn't met. And everything else sort of flows outward from that guarantee. Right. And, you know, it's not even something that the Taliban is being particularly secretive about. I mean, yes, you said that this UN report, which I believe came from a sanctions monitoring committee, was based on potentially intelligence inputs from member states. But, I mean, all you have to do is go look at the Taliban's website. I mean, um, on the... I believe the seventh anniversary of Mullah Omar's death recently in April, mm -hmm. um, a statement on the Taliban website was praising Omar for protecting bin Laden after 9-11, right? And that was just a couple yeah, months I, after I, the agreement. I mean, I, I think one of one of the highlights of the the UN report, which did come from a, from a sanctions monitoring perspective, um, was that one member state reported that the regularity of meeting between Al-Qaeda seniors and the Taliban, quote, made any notion of a break between the two mere fiction. So if you have a member state saying that, um, and I don't, we don't know who that member state is, maybe it was a U.S. person, that would be hysterical. But what you have is is this body of, of evidence, and let, like you pointed out, it's on the Taliban website, which is easily accessible via the internet, um, that that relationship is continuing. So if that's a major part of the deal, then the deal isn't being met. And so the question, I think, for the United States is how far... Um, you know, are we going to progress down the withdrawal path while that major condition isn't being met? So uh, right now we're at about 8,600 troops, which is the, the first sort of time period laid out in the agreement was 135 days, which is like mid-July um, was to get to that 8,600 and then the full withdrawal within nine and a half more months after that, which takes us to next May. Um, can we get to zero if this is if the reality is what it currently is. Um, and I, I think that's going to be a little bit of a, I don't know, it's a fascinating question um, because you have military leaders who seem to be on the like, we don't see that on the ground yet. So we can't really envision that, you know, if, if this is a conditions-based withdrawal, which has always been the, the terminology used, the condition isn't met. So there won't be a withdrawal. But on the other hand, you have, the president of the United States who really does want to pull out of Afghanistan um, and has said repeatedly that that's what he wants and he's facing an election in November. So, you know, if there isn't progress on this major aspect um, of his of his sort of politicking, you know, which which side of this battle is going to, to win? 
Right. And, you know, that was that was the annoying question that I was about to ask you, which is, you know, what is Trump going to do? Which, as we all know, is an unanswerable question. But uh, yeah, I mean, but, but he had, I guess the better sort of not a better version, because that's a great question you would have asked that I had preempted. Uh, <laughs> maybe another way of looking at it is is what is possible. Yeah. So he is the commander in chief, so he can make that decision. Um, all the military leaders in the world still have to do what he tells them. Um, so, you know, and I don't know how that would work out in like practice. Um, but he has the authority to say, we are pulling out of Afghanistan, make it happen. And they have to make it happen. Um, right. I mean, what, that, what that would do to the larger situation is it deeply problematic. I think so too. I mean, it's, it's been very quiet about the Afghanistan issue. I mean, we had that sort of blow up last September when there was supposed to be the, you know, the secret Camp David uh, meeting to conclude this agreement. And of course, it happened in February. And now, as you noted, the election timeline, I think, is really weighing on Trump, especially with his approval rating tanking domestically um, recently as well. So it is possible that we'll see him do that. I mean, some of the more cynical observers back in February um, basically were making the point that this agreement, even even if the agreement text leads off with this fact that the Taliban are supposed to cut ties with al-Qaeda, that nobody really had any serious belief that that would happen. It was only there in the agreement, so the administration could withdraw troops, and then later when it turns out that al-Qaeda is still in Afghanistan, they could say, well, we tried. The Taliban yeah. stabbed us in the back, so as long as yeah. they don't stage any attacks. you know. So I think I think that, again, is possibly what they're going for here. But I, I think the fact that you know General McKinsey is, is speaking out in this way tells us that you know if if this does come down to the president or his advisors continuing to heed the word of their military advisors as things would run in a normal administration mm-hmm. in theory this agreement should basically collapse um in in several months unless something changes dramatically um and i just don't see that happening so if if there is to be some kind of withdrawal um it's it's certainly not going to happen right away yeah, I mean, I, I certainly um, saw Mackenzie's comments in the the context of, you know, managing expectations. So it's to me that that read as the U.S. military saying, like, yes, we are processing this withdrawal. We are down to eighty six hundred. It was around twelve hundred in February, uh, but whether it goes lower than that and at what pace is going to fluctuate. Um, and they're going to say it's going to fluctuate based on the conditions. It's really going to fluctuate based on the political conditions behind the decision making, um, in my opinion, at least. And, and you know, the reality is, is that there are still attacks going on in Afghanistan. Um, they mostly target the Afghan government, which was not a party to this agreement and has essentially been dragged along into it. Um, and, you know, on the one hand, you you still have those those attacks. Now, some of them are Islamic State attacks, some are Taliban attacks, some are civilian in, targets, some of them are military targets. So there, there's a mix of things going on. Uh, we do we have seen fewer civilian casualties this year, but it's still in the hundreds. Um, so, you know, where the where is this going? And we haven't even really like factored in the the craziness of the afghan government's sort right. Of position right now like yes there there was a deal between ghani and abdullah essentially to shelve the debate over who won the presidential election uh but that deal in itself also introduces new complexities to who's in charge and who runs what and and 
given how the previous National Unity government sort of fumbled with things like appointments at ministries, sort of a, a dividing of fiefdoms of who's responsible for what, that, that's not really a great base for a functioning government. Um, and so, you know, there, there's just so many of these difficulties when it comes to Afghanistan that this, it just seems uh, abjectly unlikely to me that the United States will be out of Afghanistan by May, 2021. It just seems very unlikely. Now, I think that mostly will rest on how the political situation in the United States re revolves. Donald Trump wants to get out of Afghanistan. That's really clear. Um, I haven't looked too deeply into what Joe Biden's position on, on the, the U.S. withdrawal, but I, I have a hard time seeing a Democratic president pick up this deal as it exists and just run with it. Um, what are your thoughts sort of on that, that impact? Yeah, I mean, if I'm not mistaken, I think the Biden position is to basically work towards withdrawal, but slower, basically what Obama's position was, right? So, um, of course, we all know how that, how that went. So um, there are there are questions about how how you actually pull out of Afghanistan is sort of the perennial question of American foreign policy at this point, right? So um, yeah, no, nobody like somebody maybe has has a great idea, but like nobody has quite cracked that nut. Right? Maybe maybe in our lifetimes, at some point, <laughs> we will see it happen. No, but I think you're absolutely right. I mean, um, you know, also I just have to point out. I mean, the, the pandemic continues to loom large. I mean, especially for the Afghan government. Um, not only is you know, I mean, they're still a government that's trying to run this country and protect mm -hmm. their people and provide public health and services. And given the very fraught internal situation after this power sharing agreement, even um, it's it's not going to be a walk in the park to go and talk to the Taliban right now. And we haven't really even brought up the um, disagreements between the two sides over the prisoner release. Right. I mean, so first, you know, Ghani kind of walks back on the prisoner releases and then he says, OK, we're going to do them. And then the Taliban come back and say, OK, you release these guys, but many of these guys aren't actually our fighters. And that's just another mess. Um, and as far as I know, the U.S. has been sort of very much on the sidelines when it comes to that, leaving that to um, yeah, you know, I mean, a so-called Afghan-led process. The, the United States in that agreement said, you know, by by what is it, March 10th? Uh, there's going to be uh, inter-Afghan negotiations, and we're going. They're going to have released five thousand Taliban prisoners. Um, where, like, I would love to know who came up with that number and <laughs> and how they thought that that would would work, and whether they talked to anybody in the Afghan government about it. Because when that came out, the like the Afghan government, both Ghani and Abdel, were at first kind of whoa, 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 not not. What are you talking about? Um, and they've they've gone forward with this, and we saw uh, you know a couple days successful ceasefire um, over the Eid holiday, but not you know the it's 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 going to be a very difficult negotiation. And and you're absolutely right that the Afghan government has a lot on its plate. Um, the the pandemic is difficult for absolutely every country in the world, um, and Afghanistan is no exception in that. Um, plus, it has. Uh, all of the unfortunate results of spending, you know, 40 years uh, in some state of war or another. Um, you know, you have a very broken down health system. You have lack of funds. You have lack of access. Um, you know, your, your ordinary Afghan worker can't work from home because they work on a daily wage job. So, so it's sort of it's just, you know, a compounding list of difficulties um, and and. You know, there have been global calls for ceasefires and, and, and things like that in, in basically every conflict zone in the world, um, from the UN and from various regional bodies. 
uh, to sort of urge people to like, can we set aside these um, violent conflicts for now so that we can focus on the pandemic? And that, you know, that that's very idealistic. And I don't think that's, you know, that's not going to happen. Um, but yeah, it's difficult. Uh, I wish I had the answer. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, just to try to end <laughs> on a something of a silver lining. I mean, one of the one of the big concerns that I had in the first half of this year, particularly after the um, twin presidential inaugurations, let's say, was that mm -hmm. if if there was going to be any peace process in Afghanistan at any point in the last twenty years, I mean, one of the most important things was for the government in Kabul to have as much legitimacy as possible before going into those talks because the Taliban's whole play while they've been holed up in, in, in Doha has been to establish themselves as an alternate locus of control for Afghanistan, an alternate mm -hmm. government, which is why the Afghan government is sensitive to the point that the U.S. had to call the agreement what they called it, saying that they don't recognize the Taliban as a state. And I think after the twin, uh, twin inaugurations and, and this new power sharing agreement and now the pandemic, um, there is a possibility here for the Afghan state to potentially recoup some capacity, some legitimacy as these talks with the Taliban do continue. And I, I know that sounds like ridiculously rosy at this point, but I mean, compared to the alternative where we didn't have the power sharing agreement, I think that was a real question. I mean, did yeah. the American State Department even have the manpower to actually, you know, do what John Kerry did in 2014, for example? And they they didn't quite do it the way Kerry did it, but it, 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 it did come together in a... Uh, in a um, in an agreement in May, so well, let's see. I mean, you know, the next time we do this podcast, mm -hmm. we could be talking about a government that's fallen apart. So it's very yeah, possible I mean, that things I go think wrong. You're, you're you're absolutely right that um, the current situ that that current situation with regard to the Afghan government is better than some of the alternatives. It is probably not the best alternative, but it is definitely better than um, having two Afghan presidents who are both claiming to represent the Afghan government while the Taliban just kind of giggles on the other side of the table. So this is a much better version. And, you know, when I put my idealism hat on, which I really like wearing um, and don't get to wear as often as I would like to, <laughs> um, it would be nice if this can be the moment where, where they kind of put their, their differences aside and say, all right, we need to deal with this pandemic and we need to deal with the Taliban. And this is what we need to do. Um, and, and, you know, hope from it, hope springs eternal, as they say. Right. Well, Katie, uh, thanks a lot for joining me today. Uh, I think we'll end there, but, uh, I'd love to have you back on to, uh, talk Central Asia and Afghanistan. Uh, I would love it. Thank you very much for having me. For listeners, if you've been a subscriber to the podcast, but you haven't yet left us a review, we'd really appreciate it if you could do that. It really helps get the word out about the show. And if you haven't yet subscribed, please do so. We'd, uh, we'd love for you to keep up with, uh, future coverage on, on this podcast. Finally, before we close, a quick note from our sponsor. This episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risks. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.